Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Thank you for dropping in. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Diane Dewey, and I know that busy schedules get in the way of meeting folks we want to meet. Dropping in is a lost art. When I was a kid, my parents would sometimes go over to the neighbor's house or vice versa, just dropping in on them. Or we'd be hanging out and somebody would knock on the door and right away, it was a fun surprise. Where I live now on the Gulf Coast of Florida, I sometimes don't see our neighbor friends. Our digital lives haven't made it easier. Instead, it's more complicated. It's time to drop in and see what folks are up to. We'll do a deep dive into the subject at hand. We're dropping in to find out what makes our guests tick, artists, musicians, and writers who've discovered how to make a statement, usually one that goes against the grain. Making a contribution to the world is tough. It's a tough goal. But there are people who've come at it, usually the hard way, and won. We'll listen to their diverse stories about identity. Identity can refer to biological, nurtured, gender, cultural, racial, and spiritual, and other labels we assign ourselves, insider, outsider, hipster, square, or nerd. Sometimes the I in identity gets lost. Everyone wants to become our authentic selves despite the odds against it. We each have a context, whether it's in the family of origin, an adoptive family, or a marriage. And that makes maintaining identity the call to rediscover and reclaim who we are that much more challenging. For me, the call came when, at 47 years old, I got a letter from my Swiss biological father. Having always known I was adopted from a German orphanage at age one, I faced his question, would I like to meet him? I would, I said. And why did I agree to that? Maybe I was filling a void. My beloved adopted father had just died six months before. I'd ended a long-term romantic relationship with a man who just drove me crazy. I was ready for a new anchor. And that letter started me on a 16-year journey of learning my roots and discovering a new identity. I visited Switzerland with my biological father and went cross-country skiing in the Engadine Valley. He had done 18 ski marathons. I was petrified, but I told myself I could keep up. Maybe it was to please him. The Engadine is a special place, very raw, very rural and remote, where the old language Romanche is still spoken. It's almost extinct. This struck me as being like I was, far, far away from who I had become as an art gallery assistant in New York. My biological identity had been obscured, but back there in my father's homeland, I had aha moments. Why had I gone to Vermont years before and become a cross-country skier? Had my genetic coding been in spooling all along? What else would I learn about myself that had been hidden? Otto and I visited my biological mother's family in northern Germany. Helena had passed away before I could meet her. But the family showed me pictures in an old, musty, smelling leather album. In the photos, Helena wore outfits that she'd sewn herself. I thought back to my teenage years when I told my adoptive mother that I had to have sewing lessons in order to make the kinds of clothes I wanted. It was another uncanny connection with biological identity, but that's not all. Her siblings had kept Helena's baby spoon, pearl earrings, and grandmother's ring for me. And while I didn't have her through these talismans, I felt I had found her love. When I asked her siblings what made them think they'd ever meet me, they said, we just knew. They didn't question their intuition. It was something I'd have to reconnect with, faith in what I knew that if I were to find my inner guidance and stay true to my identity, I'd need to accept my intuition. I felt like I'd won the lottery with this loving biological family. I knew many others didn't get this chance. 
even though it would be years before I pieced together what really happened to put me in that orphanage, I had gained juice, strength and validation to move forward. Through meeting biological family, I realized that love is the strongest force in the universe. People across the globe will find one another, especially now with the advent of DNA kits. I've also learned that the truth has a special force all its own. It will prevail over deception. Faith that the truth would come out gave me trust in the world, a world that had been uncertain. I'd been told my, by my adoptive parents that my biological family were dead. Finding this truth is the subject of my book called Fixing the Fates. My identity was formed by parts of all of these people, biological and adopted. But I also became aware that I was a person I had created myself. I had to ask, who did I imagine myself to be? After I sift through and locate myself, who I am is who I designate myself to be, the labels I attach myself to. We are always becoming. Part of this process is to look beyond a traumatic past and push through self-limiting beliefs, and often to do a reality check on self-love, where every dream is attainable. My job is to resist the traps of magical thinking, either too positive or too negative. And part of my arsenal in this fight was knowledge. With a Master of Science in Mental Health Counseling, I've tried to unravel my story. I help writers get to where they want to go with their manuscripts. And my strength is in analyzing the intention and execution to see if these two match up in their story. I investigate the writer's goals and look at how language carries that out, or doesn't just yet. Writing takes shape in the editing. I've crossed out and replaced all the way along. And then I had a year's plus worth of content and copy editing. Reviewing text to make it as real as life itself is an irresistible obsession for me. At True Nord Media, I'm aided by two ace editors, one from the world of journalism and one from corporate public relations. You'll find their input indispensable. To light the way forward towards publishing, we have an on-staff book agent. My fellow writers' work forms shared truths that we want to polish and tell through story. I come out of the art world in New York, where for much of the 1990s, I worked for the Guggenheim Museum. It was a place of great visual beauty. And the visual arts relate to how you set a scene in creative writing. It's the revelation of the senses, sight, smell, sound, and touch that brings a scene alive. Since we live through our physical bodies and feel our instincts there, it's key to listen when the stomach goes into knots or our breathing gets shallow, or our eyes are squinting. Maybe we can't digest what's happening or relax enough to breathe. Or there's some that just doesn't add up. Writing is a way to access what's happening with ourselves. We make sense of our own thoughts and emotions through words laid down side by side like bricks. There's both left brain logic and insight, and if we can name the emotion, the right side brain forms a whole. That's what I've done in Fixing the Fates, which readers tell me reads like a page-turning novel. I hope that you too will find the inspiration to define or redefine yourselves from dropping in. We're stopping by to talk, to take a deep dive into a subject while we skip the small talk. We'll meet a musician who's written a Grammy award-winning song when before his dyslexia dislayed even his reading. We'll hear from a best-selling writer who didn't believe in his own strength until he found it through bodybuilding, violence, and sometimes sentence building, finally. We'll talk to an intellectual who's discovered that her elderly mother found her own truth sexually in the role of a dominatrix, an author who did things she swore she'd never do, traveling in an RV, for example. Now she lives full-time on the road, enjoying wanderlust an American living in Qatar who woke up one day to find that the rug had been pulled out and she was no longer that person, that wife. An individual who became a humanitarian when her father, then governor of a southern state, represented all that was evil in racism. 
gender-questioning persons for whom birthright is a starting point for the conscious choice of deciding who they are. Important truths about identities worm their way out. By listening to others get a foothold on who they are and learn about their process is to become more ourselves. I hope you'll take away clues for how to do this at home. You may find the person you've always known and imagined yourself to be. Dropping in guests are people like you and me, who have shown the world what it means to be an individual, to sift through, create, discard, or reclaim, and to listen to their intuition. Not always easy with all the noise of our busy lives, our yapping brains, our self-judgments, and censorship. Somehow, I never thought I'd have much to say. I wasn't empowered. But others who had more confidence encouraged me that everyone knows a unique truth. And now we're empowered to tell our diverse stories about identity. Authors, writers, musicians, and artists have been my teachers at how to arrive at a place that's aware, centered, and even brave, especially when the facts around me were collapsing. Their creativity is contagious. When we listen to their stories, it's easier to recreate ourselves the way we had intended. We may have gotten derailed by something shiny, hooked on a glamorous detour, or focused on something that turned out to be false. These distractions are not failures. They're proof that we're growing. Jim Carrey said that depression occurs when your avatar no longer identifies with who you're trying to be. The psyche knows what's real and what's not. Its signal is whatever becomes vibrant to you an inexplicable affinity with African drums, an ethnic tile, textile, or a poem. We construct identity constantly through an organic process of binge and purge. At Dropping In, we'll explore diverse stories on identity. What makes people unique? We've, we're done with shoehorning ourselves into preconceived notions of who we should be, being told who we are. Dropping in stories are stories of self-discovery. They enable us to find our truth, reconfigure ourselves to that truth, reimagine who we want to be, and become stronger for it. By listening to others talk about their own path, ours becomes less fearful. We're always supposed to know what we're doing, but often we don't, and there's no shame in that. We need a compass. Drop into the conversation. Create a new dialogue. You'll get the answers you seek or even the questions you want to avoid. The adventure continues on dropping in where unique stories become part of, part of the fabric of diversity. We're going to take a short break now. And when we return, today's guest, D.L. Byron, will drop in to chat with us about his career, about sex, drugs, rock and roll, and how he came this close to signing with Warner Records. You don't want to miss this. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about this show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say. 
developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. And we're back. Today, we're dropping in with D.L. Byron a survivor of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, who has lived to write a book and tell the story about it. The book is called Shadows of the Night. It's an extraordinary read, a great story of resurrection and rebounding. D.L. Byron, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Diane. I'm uh, quite honored to be on your premiere episode. Well, um, it's great to have of you and such an inspiring story. I I know that I did an injustice to you earlier on when I said Warner Brothers Records. So why don't you set the record straight? There was an episode in your life early on when you felt as though you self-sabotaged by not taking a record deal. And and really tell us what happened there. Okay. Actually, it it was an easy mistake. It was RCA, not a big deal. They They were both major labels and still are. Um, yeah, I, I had a band with a, a, a writing partner, a very close friend of mine. Um, um, we, we spent years writing together, and uh, we were living up in Woodstock, New York at the time, because uh, our manager had a place just outside of Woodstock in Bearsville, which mm-hmm. is just north. And um, we were up there writing and, and sort of, uh, you know, just working on our, our craft and, and getting a body of work together and enough songs to create at least an album. Actually, we came out with, with more than enough needed for, for an LP. Um, and we had this manager and his partner shopping our, our, our demo tape, which came out really well, and uh, he was, they were going to different companies. And then I got a call from um, the manager of our publishing, um, for a publishing company at the time. And she said... Uh, you know, your 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 guys, Bruce and and David, with their names, um, got you a deal. So uh, we need you to come to New York right away. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, no, don't bring any attorneys or anything like that because oh. you know we just want to make this deal like really quick. And and, and well, I that was a red flag. Something. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Not to bring attorneys was kind of weird. And um, and I, I asked her, well, can you just at least tell us who who the deal is with? And she refused. Right. So I, I sort of hung up the phone and I said, look, I'll call you back and hung up the phone. I, I started talking to my partner, Benny, and I said, listen, this, this sounds kind of fishy. Um, you know, and I explained to him what was going on and she wasn't coming forth with, with the name of the, of, of the, uh, the label. And uh, we both decided, or yeah, we both decided pretty much that we were not going to go to New York unless we at least knew what the, who the label was because we didn't want to be on some, you know, uh, we wanted to be on a major label. We didn't, we didn't want to be on some, like, you know, fledgling mm-hmm. uh, record label, which, of which at the time they were, you know, a, a multitude of. Um, and, you know, so we I were, think you were afraid, I'm sorry? justifiably so. You, you were yeah, um, I, I, that's Yeah, I was, I was really, we were trying to protect ourselves. And, uh, and of course, you know, as, as you said, you know, the, the no attorney thing was, was a big red flag. 
Right. So I called her back and I said, look, if you're not telling us the name of the label, we're not coming down. Right, and, exactly. And, yeah, and uh, she got really upset and cut us off. All of a sudden, we weren't getting our, our weekly checks. And Ooh. I think that, that uh, yeah, it was, it was really bad. And uh, <laughs> our girlfriends were buying us groceries and bringing people oh, to the no, house. Oh, no, this is, no, and, no, that's uh, not good I think for on me. my birthday that year, December 18th, we were burning our garbage in the fireplace. It had gotten like, yeah. so bad. We had, we, yeah. we had uh, no money for oil, or we borrowed money for the last tank of oil, and, and it just yeah. was just, it had crumbled. Yeah. It was just it was awful. Not a good scene. Oh, well, you yeah. know, I have to say, in the, in the retelling of it just now, it sounds like you really had some integrity there. Um, it wasn't so much self-sabotaging as it was self-protection and really trying to do the best by yourselves. And uh, when I think about it, um, in reading this story, I really always felt throughout your book, you're such an honest person. You're always trying to get kind of at the unvarnished truth. And to me, there's something very um, real in this. And that's what makes your book compelling is um, you, you almost verge on, on being, if I may say so, like kind of a nerd. You're, you're hardworking, you're honest, you're trying to get at things. And you're in this world of like a loosey goosey. Um, so you you don't strike me as the kind of quintessential rock and roll type guy where everything is kind of reckless and uh, fly by the seat of the pants. Um, you're another kind of person. And were you always a seeker, a, a seeker of some truth or integrity? Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've always been at the heart, at the core, uh, that person. Although, you know, I, I did have my, you know, slipshod moments, in, you know, in my mm-hmm. career where I acted like, you know, any other rock and roll idiot that you read about in Rolling Stone mm-hmm. or, or, you know, um, mm-hmm. various publications. But, but um, I, I think for the book's sake, um, I just really wanted to be totally, like, stripped down honest yes. and almost... Um, um, Confessional at, at, at the yes. risk of being self-effacing, yes. um, and, and that's what that's what I really aimed to do because I was it was sort of time to at, at that point in my life when I started the book, it was it, I just felt like it was time to come clean, you know, and just and just mm. tell the stories because a lot of the stories are intertwining and 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 they're interesting, I think, and I think people will find them interesting. But it was just, I had to do it in such a way that, that, uh, uh, that I was just like flat honest. I loved it. And I love the fact that you let yourself be imperfect. As a person, you showed us the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I do think that memoir, right, it's an unburdening and um, a sort of letting go of lots of things that you've been carrying around with you. So I really applaud that. And it's funny you should mention um, Rolling Stone. You meant the magazine, but I was also thinking in contrast, um, the musicians. You know, you have like Mick Jagger's recording um, Under My Thumb, and you're in your pages in your book talking about, I'm on the road, I'm sleeping with strangers, what am I doing? You know, you're a different kind of animal. You're, you're kind of a questioning person. And I wanted to know, you know, the whole, you know, thing, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that was really like and, and maybe the loneliness that you felt while you were on the road? Huh, yeah. Um, it, was, it was a whirlwind experience for sure um, because every, every night you're in a different city and, and, and the, whole, the whole prospect of playing before such large audiences was new for new to me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we um, we were playing, I think, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand seaters. Wow! So that was that was that was a new thing for me. But it was interestingly enough, um, when you're playing to that kind of um, venue, playing in that kind of venue, you really don't see anybody because the whole <laughs> house is black. Sure. So it. It's almost like you don't even know that they're there until they applaud or boo you, you know? Yeah. So uh, that, that, was, that was one aspect that, that was kind of interesting for me. Um, as far as, like, you know, the women that I met on the road and ultimately, you know, uh, had a relationship, my, 
wouldn't even call it a relationship with, but, uh, you know, the one night stands on the road. Um, that, you know, it was at that point in my life, I was sort of satisfying the um, arrested ad- adolescent in me. And uh, mm-hmm. I, w- I was just trying to go with it. But there, w- there was certainly a sense of uh, an ultimate emptiness about that because, it, you know, it was just, it was what it was. It wasn't, it was, mm-hmm. there was no exchange there, really. There was nothing um, substantial. Um, right. It was just, it was just sex for sex sake, basically. Right. You know, and there's which something sometimes is okay, uh, but, but, you know, it's right. like, it, it was just like a revolving door of, of you know, sexual experiences that really didn't lead anywhere or, you know, sort of left me feeling, I guess, empty in a, in right. a way. Right. And I, I also wondered if you were particularly sensitive to that uh, emptiness and alienation, having been raised by parents who, um, you know, you were adoptive parents, so they were not your own biological parents, but also right. radically different than you, DL. I mean, a mother who really had very serious and um, we're sympathetic to mental health issues um, that you coped with. I mean, I don't mean to make you the knight in shining armor. I do remember reading that, you know, I think fire setting and, and things that you were acting out at that time. But I wondered if it made you driven or like there was a little magnet in your life kind of going towards something warmer, more whole um, that included love and the only love that I could detect that you found in your early life, really, was that of Anne Marie. And again, you were a totally faithful, I would say, almost nerd-like person who attended to her, always took care of her, even while you were on the road doing all of this. Aunt Marie was a kind of a, a tether for you. Um, and I, I wonder what your take on that is. Yeah, she, she was. She, she really was the only person around me in, in my family setting that really understood me. Um, mm-hmm. And she openly loved me dearly. And, um, and she was always, my, mo- my, my adoptive mother, you know, as, as you mentioned, had psychological problems, um, as well as being cross-addicted to prescription medications, amphetamines and barbiturates in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. She had an arsenal of, of drugs in, in the kitchen cabinet, which I had discovered one day coming home from school. Um, mm-hmm. she was always trying to sort of keep my mother at bay or trying to sort of, you know, sort of ease mm-hmm. her yeah. down and say, you know, he's really not like that bad. And, mm-hmm. you know, you don't really have to be like on his case as much as you are. And you should just lighten up. And she was, she was my defender in, in, in many ways. So, yeah, um, that. yeah. And I, I felt, I felt, uh, you know, that when she fell on some difficult times, um, it was up to me to to come to her aid, and uh, that's pretty mm-hmm. much what happened. It's a great um, it's it's a great balance that you yeah. But you to go back to, to go back to the sexual thing, if I may, for just a minute. Sure, um, anytime. I, I think I think that the way that I was raised by my adoptive mother. Um, I, I equated love, the idea of love, with sex mm-hmm. as a result of the way I was raised, somehow. Mm-hmm. So that experience, sort of the, yeah, the experiences that I had on the road were, was just was me acting out, and I think in some you know arcane, perverse way, I was looking for love mm-hmm. through that Absolutely. kind of acti- sexual activity. So uh, there's there's some there's some kind of connection there between her, her coldness and, and the way that uh, I, I was raised, the love, the love that she had for me, which I'm sure she did have, you know, serious love for me, but it was never expressed. It was never openly expressed in any way. There was never right. any hugging, no kissing, nothing, nothing, well, that- nothing. It was cold. And, and uh, so in my, well, somewhere in my psyche, I, I equated love with sex. And I don't know how that happened, but that's where it went. Right. Well, well, there you go, right? You, you've, you've said what was the missing ingredient, which was contact, physical contact. And right. um, maybe you were seeking it. I mean, the, the feeling of having a warm body next to you would be a unique revelation at that point. And I remember reading that your, your parents also 
believe that, that somehow withholding affection was like beneficial to you because they didn't want you to get like a big head or something. And I mean, all of yeah. it was just tragic in a way. Yeah, well, that, 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 that was specific to uh, support, their support or lack of, that lack thereof for, for my musical ability. Um, right. uh, you know, they, they knew that I had talent and that, you know, I was really motivated by that, by music. And, and I really wanted to uh, learn, as, learn as much about it as I possibly could. And, um, they, they allowed me to sort of, you know, to sort of delve into it a bit, but never gave me any like, you know, backup kind of, you know, we think you're really good or mm-hmm. no supportive, no words of support, no, nothing right. like that. Uh, and it was, it was strange. Well, here um, I feel, then I feel as though you, you fell back on your own resources. You, you cultivated some spine in yourself, some self-belief that you knew and you worked with a music teacher. Um, you know, music is, is also this kind of, right, it skips over like the words um, and the literal words that we might say to one another, but you wrote songs. They're almost like poems. And I know you do write poetry now, but like songs, it's a way of expressing yourself. They were probably a little scared by it, right? That you you expressed yourself in like a terrific way. We're going to listen to a cut of Shadows of the Night, um, your version of it, which I love. Um, But do you think you you were trying to to get something out um, of, of yourself as well. I mean, a natural form of self-expression and creativity that you had, um, almost like a very right brain kind of experience. Um, you had been separated from your biological mother, right, very yeah. early on. And, um, and I, I do want everyone to know that you did ultimately reconnect with your your biological mother and not well, just yeah. one but <laughs> seven sisters there's like a whole yeah. female part of your brain a whole female part of experience that came into your life uh, later on so you've you really had yeah, well, a oh, the, the part of that particular part of the story uh, i think that's interesting is that when i was around age eight i i realized that i didn't look like either of my parents and i went to my adoptive mother and i said uh, why is that? Uh, and she said, well, you're adopted, which means that you're special, sort of in quotation marks, in the air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and your real mother died uh, in, in childbirth. Oh. And I'm like, okay, I'm special. And what? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, now I'm realizing even my eight-year-old brain could wrap around the fact that I'm responsible for my mother's demise. Um, yeah which blew me away. And, Big burden. But at the same time, I'm, I'm really not believing what my mother is telling me. I, maybe I didn't want to believe it, or maybe it was something, that, something uh, that was telling me not to believe it. I don't know, but I, I believe that my, my birth mother was indeed alive and that mm-hmm. one day I would meet her, and I carried that with me throughout my entire life until, until the late 90s when I finally did, through a certain strange turn of events, um, make contact with my middle, one of my middle sisters, and then eventually, like a week later, um, uh, met my my mother and and my seven sisters. Um, <laughs> it's just something. <laughs> it's something magical, fairy tale about. It. I love that you also had this inkling, DL, that you you nurtured, you kept it alive, like a little tiny flame inside yourself, yeah. and it's it's just the most beautiful thing. And then to have it be such a big kind of Reunion, but I I want to um, I do want to play a cut of Shadows of the Night where I think we really hear in your voice um, a great kind of search going on, and um, I I hope we can I hope we can cue that up. Um, how are we doing for hearing D. L. Byron's version of Shadows of the Night? Oh girl. Cold world for the restless and the young. They say slow down, show down, but our time will save the best for the last. Because um, I'm I'm not hearing the tea up, but that's quite all right. It's something that I think must have been 
deeply thematic for you because you also named your book Shadows of the Night. And I think, you know, it, it's playing on the shadow side where everything is not neat, tied up packages, the things that you suspected were not true. It's the shadow side, right? The side yeah. that's more, the more true side and that you were fearless about investigating. Um, and I know you're writing now and I, I hope you're maybe writing even more songs. I don't know. Are you? Um, yeah, I am. Um, I'm getting back into it. Although, you know, writing the book uh, created such a, a, a mindset that, um, that I just got like, um, not trapped in, but I, I just, just enveloped me and, and, uh, and it became like so, uh, so much of such an obsession to write that book. That I well, really I, could, and I was thinking on on a completely different level than writing songs. It's a whole different animal, you know. Um, totally. And it's something it, that I had never done before, and I didn't even know what I was getting into. And once I was, you know, knee deep in it, and I said, "Oh my God, I, I, am I going to be able to finish this?" But yes. um, but I, I did, and uh, it, but but it's been a little well, difficult to break out of that of that book writing mo- mindset and get back into songwriting. But I'm doing it. Oh, um, hopefully there'll uh, I, be more soon. Yes. Well, I hope that it was an enveloping of love because I think everybody enjoyed the fact that you did break out of the medium, medium of songwriting, albeit it's your strength, because it tells us so much more about your story. And we want to hear more um, when, we, when we come back. I think the fact that you wrote, you took the time to sit down with us and tell your story it's so worthwhile, and you got into the interior space of what it was like to be adopted, to learn that you were, had musical genius, to be unaccepted and then accepted widely, and to become a star. And when we come back, we're going to hear a little bit more about what happened with that dynamic. Uh, we'll okay. take a short break, and we'll be back with D.L. Byron. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. During the break, by DL, we were talking about how books can be a companion, and you have read voraciously. 
Tell me about some of the yes. things that the some of the authors and ideas that kept you going um, as you took this journey. Uh, well, it's it started out um, when, when I was a teenager, and I uh, I just began to read, and and you know I was severely dyslexic and still am, um, mm-hmm. so I, I forced myself to read. I mean, I think a lot of people who who suffer with dyslexia tend to sort of give up, and I just forced myself. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I read a lot of the classics when I was a kid, and, and, and then I sort of got into, um, as I got into songwriting, I got into modern poetry. Um, e. E. Cummings, uh, Ferlinghetti, um, T.S. Eliot, people like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I became completely enamored with what was going on. Uh, being a big fan of Bob Dylan... Also, uh, that sort of sort of connected all those connected the dots a little bit because Dylan, at the time when he went electric, started really his writing changed and he started to really sort of play with words or paint with words almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I just got into that whole uh, sort of you know way of expressing some some kind of twisted imagery that that you know was unique and, and said something entirely unexpected and, and different. And, and uh, uh, that was very inspiring to me and, and became integrated into my songwriting. Well, so, I, love uh, the, I love paint with words because I, I know um, that you actually are painting these days. You're, you're not the only recording artist to have done so, but I, do you feel as though that increases like a, a dimension in yourself to be able to paint as well? I, I feel like it's therapy for me in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't know if what I do is any good. It doesn't really matter to me. I just, I just have to do it. And uh, uh, I, I, that's the kind of the nature of, of the work that I'm, I'm doing now. I, was, I paint on the floor. Um, oh, like Jackson yeah, Pollock. I, I, yeah, I was just going to say. And the, the kind of stuff that I do, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, Jackson Pollock uh, on acid throwing up on the floor. Uh, cool. <laughs> but you don't have to be on acid, and you don't really have to be throwing up either. You know, that's no, I don't. But that's what it kind of looks like. That's what the stuff kind of looks like. But not quite Pollock, but it's, it's just sort of like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, they're like sort of psychscapes, I, I think, in a they're way. Fr- um, right. They're free and like autonomous um, painting where it comes straight out of your psyche. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they're just yeah they're they're just totally like um, subconscious uh, or unconsciously done. So mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever they are, they are. They sort of create themselves. I think in a way that's 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 about that's what all art is about. It's, it's about you know the individual just becoming a, a vessel in a way, and and you get your ego and yourself, you know, your big self um, out of the way. So that the art can sort of create itself. Absolutely, and, uh, and that's true in, in, in songwriting. I know um, because a, a song like "Shadows of the Night" in particular was written in like fifteen or twenty minutes. So wow. it's basically a, a question of me just saying, "Okay, I'm at the piano. Uh, I've got a pad and a pencil, and you know, just go." You know, and it just happened. So, uh, and those are usually the best songs. So. Totally. I mean, you're unmediated, right? You're not judging yourself, your egos, you're standing to one side. And uh, I, I also, I mean, to me, that's, that's fascinating that you're able to access that. Um, and, and, and the other thing you were able to access, I think, was a kind of a, a psychic ability, right? You had, I mean, did, did you actually experience kind of um, unbidden messages um, from even your biological mother or, I mean, at times you've been very, very intuitive. And I wondered if you thought that this creativity and this intuition were linked and whether or not that was something that you inherited. It's just you. I mean, certainly you've had a number of of sources. Um, What do you feel about um, that? I I knew at a pretty early age that there was, that there was something about me that I didn't understand, mm-hmm. and um, I would I would get these images that would pop into my head, and and I would never be able to figure out where they came from until later on down the road. I would 
it would actually transpire. And I'd say, oh, right, I, wow, I thought of that like six months ago or three months ago or something. So I, I knew I had something going on, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I basically lived my whole life sort of intuitively, but not really knowingly. I just, it just happened that way. Uh, and as it turns out, when I finally met my, my birth mother, she is uh, very, very, or was very, very psychic, um, as, as some, of my, some of my sisters are, especially one in particular, uh, the youngest, Sandy. She's uh, very, very gifted. Um, mm-hmm. But they don't seem to really want to be so much in touch with that part of themselves. And I think that that's people who have that going on in their life sometimes are put off by that and maybe scared to, to go there. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I've sort of figured out that, you know, it's just part of me and uh, I should be welcoming of it uh, and to try to, try to uh, nurture it as, as best I can because it's a, it's a very useful tool. Sure. It's your superpower. I think, you know, normal... <laughs> Normal mortals, you know, this is like going back to bewitched, right? You know, there's mortals, you know, and you can't blame people for wanting to, they have normal lives. You fortunately have a life where you've been able to expand out into a world of creativity. And the things that you're saying just strike me as being creativity defined, you know, like um, not knowing where images, impressions, or, you know, uh, sounds even were coming from. And just allowing yourself. I wondered if your practice of meditation um, and your study of Buddhism uh, also yeah. enabled your ability to stand aside from your ego and allow this juice this to flow, your flow to happen. Well, that's, that's really what meditation is all about. And, and, um, and of course, you know, uh, you know, the Buddha talked about, you know, life is, is suffering, but, but um, you know, he also offered, you know, sort of the remedy to that, which is the stillness that, that we find through meditation. Um, and that's when, you know, you, there is no ego. If, you, if you're able to, and you're not always able to get there, you know. I mean, as try as you may, I mean, you could have a regular meditational practice that where you do it every day for a certain amount of time, maybe twice a day, um, it, you don't always get to the same point each time. But, you know, you do get somewhere, and it's worthwhile doing. And, and, um, and the more you do it, the more you understand that um, your ego is, is, is the thing that's, that's chattering all the time. It's, mm-hmm. your, it's that part of your mind. Well, the Buddhists call it monkey mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you, can, you can see how that, that, that um, metaphor is, is, is accurate because it's something that's just jumping around and screaming all the time. So, right. um, and, and, and you're basically, most people allow that to control their lives, unfortunately. Right. They never well, realize that they, they identify with that and they think that's their self. That, um, they think, but it's yeah, not. They, Right, exactly. I mean, you've, you you so, at least I, I I love that you you know sort of when you meditate sometimes you just get to turn down the volume on that, but you know lots of people aren't trying. They they think we're supposed to be governed by our mental selves, and you know I think you've found a, a way through that. Um, you know, again, you've done a lot of uncovering, and you've got yeah. you know you've gotten yourself to a point where you're listen almost you're listening almost to a different vibration, um, a different vibrational place where you go. Um, and of course, um, you know, as, as a fellow writer, I can attest that putting words, words on a page, it's a different medium, right? It's a different vibe. Um, so yeah. I, I think, we you know, we, we talked a little bit about this before, but I think our audience is, is going to want to know um, if you're working on some songs, if you want to go back to that more artistic place, not that the book isn't, because um, it's, it's a great read. It's a compelling read I could not put down. Um, but I, I do want to hear what's next for you and, and what are your, what's your next vision? I honestly don't know. I'm, um, I've, I've been performing a lot more recently, and uh, I'm really enjoying that. Mm-hmm. Um, That's great. Um, I'm starting to write songs again, so I'm, I guess Yay. I'm going to go there as well. 
Um, cool. Uh, you know, as far as writing another book, I'm, I'm, I'm I kind of feel like like I'm supposed to, or that I I I, I might, uh-huh. but um, I I don't I don't know I don't know what it's going to be because well now um, we're. Okay, we're on the edge of our seat now, DL. You, you know, you don't have to tell us, but this is this is super groovy to be to expect. Wow, maybe we're going to hear more. Um, and you're getting yeah, more I, fluid, I don't know. I need a little distance from from the from the first book before before I even like broach that that issue. But um, there's part of me that can see myself writing another book. What it, what it, what it's going to be? I have no clue. So I um, I, I, I just I can't yeah tell you. well. Well, that's probably even better, right? It's going to announce itself someday when you least expect it. I'm going to read just a short passage from D.L. Byron, Shadows of the Night, um, at the point where your adoptive mom has passed away. You write, I just wanted to understand the pain inside my chest. It was like a Molotov cocktail of both heartbreak and relief, working simultaneously to confuse and torture me. Of course I had loved her. I just didn't know if it was the normal love a son has for his mother. I mean, this language, it's taking us, it's transporting us into a place. Um, and I just want to, you know, thank you for that. And, and I also understand um, that, and I, I just encourage everyone to delve into this. And I encourage you, DL, as a writer who's now established a couple different platforms, you know, just keep going Um I think we've got a message now that our song, the, your your song, it's not the only song you wrote. There are other fabulous songs on your LPs, and I'd encourage everyone to to look you up. Um, your website, dlbyron.com, and your great production company, Zen Archer, which fabulous. You're obviously a yeah. Sagittarius. Yeah, um, people can go to the website and check out my music, and there's also a link to buy the book. It'll take you to Amazon if you're interested. So, um, yeah, great. Be, check that out. That's great. Okay, I'm going to um, I'm going to ask now that we play your song, um, the the wonderfully compelling song, "Shadows of the Night" in your very very own voice, Steel Byron. Oh, girl. Cold world for the restless and the young. They say slow down, so show down, but our time will surely come. The hungry hunter he makes his laws with the barrel of a gun. We're running through the shadows of the night, so come and take my hand. We'll be all right. If I have to stand and brave the fight, I will win in the end. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.